Uh, and we have on this Palm Sunday, it's the beginning of Passion Week, uh, two scripture readings, one from Psalm 118. There's one to two, and then we'll skip and do 19 to 29. Uh, you'll hear echoes of Christ's uh, entrance into the city. And then from Luke 19, you'll hear uh, Luke's account of that triumphal entry. So we have someone who's going to read from Psalm 118. Okay, thanks, Gail. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Verses 19 through 29. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Come, Lord Jesus, in the power of your spirit, and sit in these pews next to us, walk these aisles among us. Uh, speak to us. And listen for us, that our hearts might be open to you and the transforming power of your Spirit. 
We acknowledge you this day, our Lord and King. And we cry out, Hosanna, save us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So here we are at Palm Sunday, five weeks of Lent into the wilderness and back based on the 40 days of Christ's journey into the wilderness. Now we've arrived to Jerusalem. Today's Palm Sunday, it's also Passion Sunday. There's like a twofold emphasis. Uh, Palm Sunday, recognizing Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it also, which is wonderful, but it also marks the beginning of the Passion Week, the week of Christ's suffering, the week of his death, the week of the cross and the grave. And so this, this um, atmosphere of Lent continues, doesn't it? We called it a bright sadness. There's the brightness of Easter. There's the brightness of the King among us. But there's also the sadness of suffering, of looking into our own hearts and lives and recognizing that uh, we are far from who Christ is calling us to be. Um, there's a bright sadness still yet to be considered this morning. And so what I want us to do is take a look at the, the twofold aspect of this day. Palm Sunday, Christ's entry, and also the Passion Week. Palm Sunday itself has sort of a twofold aspect, which I think can show us the beauty and the goodness and the hope that is also there for us in the Passion. So let's take a look for a moment at Christ's entry into Jerusalem. Um, it actually has... Uh, allusions to the creation story. Because here in this particular moment, we see the culmination of Christ's entire life as the second Adam. Right? The first Adam sinned, disobeyed God and fell into sin, uh, brought about the fall of the world and so on. The second Adam, Christ, as Paul calls him, the second Adam is faithful and obedient and lives in love and lives truly on our behalf. He accomplishes and heals what the first Adam lost. So here in this moment, we see the culmination of Christ's whole life to this point. After his baptism, he went into the wilderness for 40 days. There's the pattern of Lent. And when he emerged from the wilderness, led by the Spirit yet again, he announced what he was coming to do. He announced his message. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so his whole life is a proclamation, a demonstration of God's kingdom. What it looks like when the fallen world is healed. And so what we see in this morning's text as he comes into Jerusalem acclaimed as the king, what we see here is a glimpse, a bright, a brightness at the beginning of a dark week. A brightness that shows us things set right. So let's look at him. Of course, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the king that is acclaimed by many. We sang about his kingship this morning. We've prayed about it. Here's the king of God's kingdom. It's Jesus. But if you look a little more closely, you can see some other resonances to that creation account. What was lost in the fall from the garden. How many disciples does he send? Does he give an order to? Two, right? Kind of like Adam and Eve or two in the garden. Now he gives a direction. Go up into the village ahead of you and you'll find there a donkey, a colt tied. And tie it and bring it back. In the kingdom, the disciples in love, they do exactly what he says. Other accounts in the gospel are a little more clear about this. They're almost like word for word. They do exactly what Jesus says is kind of the point. Whereas Adam and Eve, those two turned away and fell. In the kingdom that Christ brings about, those who love Jesus respond to Jesus and are eager to serve Jesus. And you see the accomplishment of God's purposes 
through them. Not just separate from them, but he includes all of us in that endeavor. Okay? So we see Jesus having come to the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is like one pretty big mountain on this side. Oh. There's a microphone. There's a big mountain on this side. And uh, you've got Bethphage, the town mentioned, then Bethany, the next town mentioned. Do you remember we talked about it last week? Bethany's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Bethany is the place where the woman brought the perfume and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped that perfume away with her hair. He's just been there recently, right? So here he, again, he's coming through the same region, the Mount of Olives, Bethany's here, all these experiences he's had raising Lazarus from the tomb. Down off the mountain is a valley, the Kidron Valley, and directly across from that is Jerusalem on top of the other mountain. All this is happening really close together. You can see these places, one from another. And so Jesus is coming, he says to them in Bethany, like, go ahead, this next village you see, you'll find a donkey tied. They respond immediately in obedience. So here's the king directing those who live in love in his kingdom. They respond in obedience. But then we see other bits of the creation account coming into play. Do you remember what God gave Adam and Eve to do as a responsibility? Actually, Adam, Adam's first task was to name the animals. Um, he was to give a name to participate with God in the creation. He was to give them a name. And so here, these two disciples are going to get an animal a beast of burden, upon whom no one had ever yet sat. It was an odd way of stating that, but no one had ever ridden this donkey. Now, growing up, we had horses. Now, if you've ever seen a colt or the foal uh, of a donkey who's never been ridden before, they don't like it. <laughs> yeah, right, it's not fun for them. Right, who is this now climbing atop my back? And yet, in this instance... They lead the donkey to Christ. And did the story say Jesus was bucked up and down all the way down the Mount of Olives? No, he just rode the donkey in. At some level, you see the restoration of creation. Both humanity, right? In their loving obedience and his direction. But also we see the animals, the beasts, coming now not to humanity in a position of fear, but of in some sense of cooperation, of trust. Um, sort of as an aside, there are accounts of many of the saints who go out into the wilderness as hermits, encountering wild beasts, but not being attacked by them. There are lots of accounts like this. Um, and I don't exactly know what to do with that. But there is precedent here. that in the, Because these folks, as they're purified, they're living in the kingdom. Some of these saints who have gone out, they're living in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom, we're not at war with the animals. They don't shy away from us, but we have dominion and, and, and sovereignty over them and responsibility for them. And so now there's this grounding, perhaps, of some of those stories, at least here, in Christ's interaction with this donkey. So all, these themes from creation are coming back in. A glimpse of the kingdom. The second Adam appears. Those who trust him and love him respond in obedience and love. The beasts are coming together, but the creation itself. What did Jesus say would happen if the disciples were silent? 
Pharisees come. They're upset that they're giving Jesus credit for all this stuff. He says, tell them to be quiet. He says, hey, if they're quiet, even the rocks would cry out. But notice, they don't have to. They don't have to. Because humanity, the crowds who have come, the crowds who are claiming Jesus as king, are fulfilling their priestly role. Sometimes we hear the word priest, we think, oh, that's a religious thing. But actually, in our natural state, in your natural state, you are a priest. That's what you are as a human being. One who, who uh, is a, in obedience to God represents God in our care in the world. So we, we are made in the image of God. But also, part of that task is to gather up the inarticulate praise of the creation and offer it back to the Lord in intelligible speech. Right? So we have the gift of language, the gift of words, and we direct that to God. In a very simple way, you know, when you go from here and eat lunch today, you will be taking of the creation and integrating it into your life. And when you praise God, you're gathering up the creation and you offer it to the Lord. Um, but that's, that's our task. But if we were not to do that, even the stones would cry out. Now, when I hear that, I think about like Grandfather Mountain, these massive, you know, cliffs or whatever. That's, that's not actually what we're talking about in this instance. I got to go to the Mount of Olives last year. And we walked one of the pathways that perhaps is the one that Jesus walked as he entered in to Jerusalem, rode the donkey on Palm Sunday. And there, uh, along this route, and actually anywhere on the Mount of Olives, you're going to be walking through a massive graveyard. Um, many of these graves were there 3,000 years ago. So they've been there 1,000 years by the time Jesus showed up. Uh, the, 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 the rock there um, <clears throat> is chalky. So like, if you pick up a rock and then toss it, you're going to have this like chalk-like dust on your hands. And so this, this rock, you can carve into it fairly easily. So there's some caves that people have dug into the hill where they began to bury their family members. Um, you have these, what's the plural of sarcophagus? Sarcophagi? Okay, thank you. I'm just taking a chance on that. Uh, about the size of the communion table, made out of this rock. You, it's a stone sarcophagus. And... Um, so they dot the hillside. As far as you can see, it's one after another. It's sort of an odd thing. But the whole Mount of Olives on this side is just tombs, Jewish graves. And as we walk down through them, we notice something. On top of all the graves were rocks. Rocks dotted the top of the sarcophagus. And it's been tradition for centuries, millennia, I guess, that when you come... You would take a rock, you came to honor a loved one, to remember them, to pray for them, or, or, or whatever. You would come and you bring a rock, and as a sign of that prayer, as a sign of expectation of the resurrection, you would place a rock on top. Jesus is entering Jerusalem among these graves that dot the hillside. He's coming from Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. He's being acclaimed John actually tells us this. Luke doesn't. John says these crowds were crowds of people that had seen him at Bethany going towards the Passover feast that everyone, the whole country was going to in Jerusalem. And so they began to go with him. And he's got all these disciples around him, hundreds of people. And they're telling everyone, they're bearing witness to the fact 
everybody that will listen, that this guy raised Lazarus from the dead and we saw him and this is the one right here. And so he's going in and they're saying these things about him and the Pharisees say, whoa, you better tell them to be quiet, raising the dead. And Jesus says to them, if they didn't speak, in one sense fulfilling their priestly role, if they didn't speak, these rocks that cover the tombs of your ancestors would cry out. Here's the one who is victorious over death. Here's the, one, here's the king of the kingdom of life. Here's the one who is going to bring about peace. Now, the, the crowds do one last thing that is pretty noteworthy that also picks up these themes from creation. What do they do? They take their outer garment they would have had several kind of robes or whatever. They, would, they took their outer garments and they began to lay them before Christ. They put one on the donkey. He sat upon it. They began to lay them out on the road in front of him so the donkey wouldn't walk on the ground but upon their clothing. Uh, a sign of honor, right? Certainly. Now, do you remember what happened after Adam and Eve fell and after God set them outside the garden and set an angel at the gate, and thorns and thistles began to um, frame life in the fallen world. Do you remember what he did in the midst of those thorns and thistles? He gave them garments of skin. There was a sacrifice of an animal, perhaps, although there are differing interpretations of what that exactly means. Uh, there's certainly maybe the literal sense, but there's a, a larger meaning behind it. Um, he covered them. As a way, what, what do garments of skin do? They protect you in a world of thorns and thistles. They, 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 there's, a, there's a protective layer. There's an added layer to who you are, to your life, that helps you get on in the world. Certainly, that's what clothing does for us. I mean, you guys showed up with snow on the ground on Palm Sunday. Many of you were wearing coats when you came in. Yeah? Um, that's an added layer. That's a, that's a garment of skin. It allows you, in a cold climate, to not only you know, to feel comfortable on your way between the car and the church, but in a larger sense, it keeps your life, protects your life, allows you to survive. Now, many of you who came in with coats also drove here in a car. Any, any form of technology can really kind of be thought of as a garment of skin. It's an added layer that allows us to move through time more quickly or to compress space. Think about Driving saves a lot of time from walking. It makes spaces closer together because you can get there more efficiently. But there's also this outer covering, isn't there? You sit inside of your car. And garments of skin have like a positive element, but there's also a negative side to it. Um, you know, clothes protect you. But then like, I don't know if you see advertisement for like Fashion Week in Paris, you know, there are so some maybe ridiculous aspects to clothing that you can uh, notice um, that aren't perhaps helpful. A car really helps you in your life, but, you know, we're noticing Matt Pittman there this morning. He shows up at a lot of car accidents, doesn't he? There can be this negative component. It's an aspect of the fallen world. Yes, it's protection, but there's also another element. Many of you who drove here in cars with coats on came from a home or a place where you live, which protects you from the elements, but also other people, doesn't it? Anybody lock your doors? 
a garment of skin. There's an extra layer that guards us. But notice what the people do here. In this demonstration of the kingdom, the people take off their garments of skin. They don't need it. With Christ, it's not thorns and thistles anymore. They don't need to protect themselves anymore. They remove these added layers to their lives. We all have them, don't we? You've got extra stuff that you build up to protect yourself from other people. Relationally, uh, you have aspects that protect you in your work or even just moving through it physically. Like Those things in the kingdom go away. They take off the garments of skin. They lay them down before the king. They trust in him. So, what I want you to see, the twofold aspect of Palm Sunday is that there's an outer experience of what happens. Historically, Jesus entered into the city on a donkey as people wave palm branches and saying, Hosanna, save us, Lord, and place garments of skin before him. Here's a, here's a demonstration, here's a glimpse of brightness in the midst of Passion Week. Here it is, the kingdom apparent, the king, the second Adam, here for us. Entering the city of peace, Jerusalem, as the king of peace who enters atop a donkey. But that entrance into the holy city is also indicative of an entrance into your own heart. Right? Because the people in the crowds, after they lay down their garments, watched Jesus go a little further until he disappeared from sight. And I guess they sort of shrugged and looked down on the ground and picked up their shirt, dusted it off, put it on, and went back to everyday life. Until later in the week, crowds gathered and screamed, crucify him to the king who comes in peace. Who screamed, kill him. Give us the criminal. Give us Barabbas. Put him to death. And so what we see there is like this shocking display of all the noisy voices, all the crowds that take up residence in our hearts, don't they? Maybe you remember when you first came to know Christ, when you first came to trust in Jesus, saying, I'm going to rely upon you. I believe you died and rose again from the dead for me, and I'm trusting that you will save me, that you will bless me, that you will carry me and be faithful to me throughout my life. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The opening to our, hint, our psalm this morning. You remember the goodness of that. And you began to look at all aspects of your life and say, how can I give this to God and this to God? How does this change everything for me? But little by little, maybe, as that initial encounter began to fade, you started reaching down in the dust again. And you said, well, yeah, Jesus, you can be my Lord and Savior. And I trust in your work on the cross Resurrection from the grave, but I think I'm going to put this shirt back on. This thing that I use to protect me from other people. This particular passion that, you know, I would like to keep for myself. And little by little, we begin to pick up all these other pieces of our lives. And you, you would know what those are better than I do. What are the garments of skin that you wear that you don't leave at the feet of Jesus, but that you take back up to make it in the world? Because, you know, people are going to be people and you've got to protect yourself and I don't know what they are, but what, what might they be for you? These crowds do this. We can see how in our own lives we do that. In the big picture or in a week. 
Because Sunday we're here. And what have we said? Hosanna. We sing, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. And then by Thursday, we're like, maybe we're not yelling, crucify him. But we're looking at our lives in some particular encounter with some other person and we put our armor on and we go to battle. We don't leave it at the feet of Jesus. Um, I have a little poem right here. It speaks to this. I want you to listen to it. Palm Sunday. Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart. The Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, the crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle's won. Too soon they'll find the challenge. The reversal he's bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind the surface flourish that so quickly fades. Self-interest, fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come break my resistance and make me your home. You see how quickly we move from Hosanna, we worship you, Lord, to self-interest and the barricades of guardedness in the world. What do we do? Maybe I'm just preaching to myself because I see it in me. But if anyone shares that, what do we do? This is where the second part comes in. The Passion Week. You don't do anything. There's the good news. We see it in ourselves. What do we do? It's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. Because Jesus, who enters with the acclaim of the crowds and with the loving welcome into their hearts, also goes on Monday Thursday and washes the feet of his disciples and breaks bread and pours a cup and says, this is my body and blood broken and given for you for the forgiveness of your sin. That same Jesus goes and prays again on Olivet in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweats blood because of what he faces, but ultimately says for, for himself and for all of us as we share in it, Lord, not my will but yours be done. That same Jesus, before his hands are bound by crowds that come to arrest him, heals a centurion's ear. That same Jesus is taken and placed in a, um, in a dungeon, dark, where he prays the Psalms. He's taken out, faces trial. The innocent one placed, on ju- uh, placed in front of a judge who is guilty and is condemned. The same Jesus bears in his flesh the wounds that are the worst we can do to him. The scourge, the flame. Uh, he carries a cross as he is mocked and spit upon. He climbs a hill. There, his hands and feet are nailed to it. And as he looks out with arms stretched wide and sides soon to be opened that we might be drawn into his heart, what does he do? He looks at his mother and the beloved disciple and he gives them to each other, concerned not for his own suffering, but concerned that they would be cared for and loved. 
He cries out from that cross, I thirst. He cries out from that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has anyone ever felt forsaken by God? There's nowhere that you could go that Christ hasn't already gone, even to the place of feeling God forsaken. It is from this place on the cross that eventually at the ninth hour, He willingly gives up His Spirit. The Gospels are clear about this. It's not taken. He willingly gives it up out of love for you and for me, for the world that He's made and the world which He redeems and the kingdom that He brings where we all might be gathered together. Jesus is taken down and wrapped up in swaddling clothes and placed in a tomb and the stone is rolled shut. What do we do when we recognize how quickly we go from praising God to shouting crucify Him in our own way? The brightness which so quickly seems to go to the dark, what do we do? You don't do anything. You look to Him who goes for you. To Him whose arms open wide to you. You look to Jesus. who at the end of our reading this morning said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he wept over the city, would that you knew the things that make for your peace. What is made for your peace? Because you have it now. It's yours. Exactly who you are. You have peace with God because of Christ. He's the King of peace, entering into the city of peace entering into your heart to bring peace. What do you do? Well, here's maybe what we can do. We can't do anything really, but we can trust in Him. And maybe this week, we cannot jump from Hosanna loud Hosanna to He is risen without also walking with Him and seeing the things that have made for that peace. It's a season of bright sadness. Let's trust in Jesus, our Lord, our God, and the King of the Kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.